have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1 as we begin a new series this Advent season entitled Christmas Carols. Luke chapter 1. I love the Christmas season. I love it not only for the liturgical emphasis upon Advent as we think of how the infinite Son of God becomes finite to save us as humans from our sin that separates us from a holy God. I love as a parent also celebrating the season of Christmas. There's not much about Christmas that we just don't love from uh, the beautiful decorations that you have decorated your home with, the lights that you see as you travel through the neighborhoods, to the beautiful decorations that adorn our sanctuary this morning. There is much to celebrate in the Christmas season. We have movies that we watch as a family. Christmas Eve, we, we see Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. And every time they hear a bell ring, an angel gets its wings to not the most classic movies, I guess you could say. I'm not really sure that Santa Claus 2 with Tim Allen is going to hold up like It's a Wonderful Life. But it's made our list, at least in our boys' eyes, and every, every year we see Tim Allen um, at Santa Claus. And so there, there are many traditions that you have from the food to the festivities of Christmas. For us as a family, there is nothing that we probably enjoy more than the soundtrack of Christmas, the music of Christmas. Now, we have a, a particular way in our family. I, I don't know how you introduce music, Christmas music, into the holidays for you. I, I know we have some pre-Thanksgiving Christmas folks here, I I just want to say there's only one proper time to start listening to Christmas music, and that is the day after Thanksgiving, not before. Uh, I know right after Halloween, if you go into any uh, store, you hear Christmas music, but that is uh, one step under heresy right there, and... (laughs) It, should, it is reserved, and for us, the way it happens is, is we, we leave a Thanksgiving meal and we're driving to another Thanksgiving gathering the day after uh, Thanksgiving, and that's when we start listening. That's when we pull out Alabama, Spotify playlists, and we got Christmas and Dixie, we got Rudolph, we've got Frosty, and, and we're driving, not December the 1st, not before Thanksgiving, but the day after Thanksgiving. That's when the soundtrack of Christmas is appropriate. It is important for you to know that the soundtrack of Christmas is what unites us as a faith family. Long after we're gone from Dawson, prior, if the Lord tarries in his second coming, we're going to sing these songs as a Christian church. Silent night, we will sing joy to the world. We will sing hark the herald angels sing. I I don't see a foreseeable future. I'm not a prophet. But those songs endure. It unites us across generations. The soundtrack of Christmas is that unifying, that present, that clear. I want us to look over the next four weeks of Advent, not to Christmas carols that you would sing in a Baptist hymnal, but rather uh, carols of Scripture. 
The words that, that have a melody to them in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 that seem to us that there is something about the coming of Jesus Christ that prose itself cannot contain and the coming of the baby in the manger must sing forth. Melody must sing forth. So look with me, not at the main event, but a, a coming attraction of sorts. Look with me, not at the manger that we'll hear the angelic chorus sing of later on in this series, but, but look at one of the opening acts that whets our appetite for the coming of Christ. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it gives us the context around this song. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. There are a couple of adjectives that we discover in Luke chapter 1 as they describe this couple Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're faithful, they're righteous, they're just, they're obedient. But what we discover is, is to be faithful, to be righteous, to be just, doesn't give you immunity from pain in life. That Elizabeth knows firsthand the pain of infertility. She knows the longing of the desire of a mother's heart to have a child and the disappointment of years passing by. Zechariah knows firsthand the, the longing to comfort his wife, but the, this silence and this pain is before them. In that first century culture, there's a lot of implications for that. 
In our culture, there are a lot of emotional implications. Maybe it was Thanksgiving. Maybe you're not really looking forward to Christmas as you will be in a gathering and there will be all of these children around and all of these gifts to be open, but years have passed. Doctors' visits have not brought about the long hope of your marriage to have a child biologically. And there's a silent sorrow. Elizabeth, Elizabeth knew that sorrow. Zechariah, husband, he, he knew that sorrow. And we don't know if they had eager and a little nosy uncles and cousins that would say, now when are y'all going to have a kid? When are we going to be able to celebrate with you guys? We, we don't have those kinds of details, but we can imagine some of the pain that they felt. We can imagine in that first century Jewish culture, we know some of the implications of this that are far removed from us within our own religious culture. To be a Jewish wife in the first century, to be barren, was uh, interpreted as a curse from the Lord. To be in the first century, to be a Jewish male and uh, whose wife suffers from infertility, that was grounds by some Jewish rabbis for divorce. So there are some religious implications to this, not along, uh, not just emotive and emotional implications of this. But in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their tears, there is an announcement that comes to this faithful, just, righteous priest by the name of Zechariah. And the angel Gabriel says, you are going to be a father. Your wife, her uh, your prayers have, have come to God and he is bestowing upon you this gift of a child. And then verse 18 reads what would really be a logical explanation to Gabriel's announcement. Verse 18 reads this way. I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now all of us in this room, we can sort of understand how Zechariah's response would be this response. Zechariah is saying something that we get. You usually don't use a senior adult discount to go to Babies R Us and purchase formula and diapers for your own child. That, that is something that is out of the ordinary. And Zechariah is just saying what is obvious. And he's not the first person in the Bible to say this. You rewind the soundtrack of the Bible, and you have another mom laughing, another father saying, what? And Abraham and Sarah, God tells them in Genesis chapter 12, guess what? You're going to be the father of a great nation. And so they have this promise. Off they go to a land God is going to show them, longing to be the father of a great nation. Well, to be the father of a great nation, you have to have a son. They don't have a son. They're longing for it. They know tears. They know pain. And then these three mysterious heavenly visitors show up and, and say to Abram, guess what? In a year, we're going to come back and Sarah is going to be rocking your child. Sarah hears this in the house and she chuckles. She, she laughs because it was so out of her understanding. Mary, 
If you fast forward the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, just a few verses later, is going to hear the angelic announcement, and she is going to meet it with skepticism. Abraham, Sarah, they walk through their process. Mary walks through her process, but in a very unique way, Zechariah is set aside for the consequences of disbelief that seem to not have struck Abraham and Sarah nor Mary. What is the origin of this specific consequence upon this man of God? He's muted. He's silent because of his disbelief. Why not Abraham? Why not Sarah? Well, it very well may be that the words of James that tell us a teacher of the word will be judged more harshly. It very well may be that God is saying, Zechariah, you know this story. Why are you so surprised? You know in the very essence of who you are, how I did this for Abraham and Sarah, and how I can, while it's biologically impossible, it is spiritually possible when the Holy Spirit is upon you, we can understand with Mary that she says, this literally in my solitude here, and a lack of intimacy with my husband-to-be, this cannot happen. So we can understand the uniqueness of Mary's announcement. But here is Zechariah, a man of God who is muted in his disbelief, uh, disbelief of this angelic announcement. It's easy to feel sorry for Zechariah. But I don't think we need to feel sorry for Zechariah. I, I think there is a deep principle that, that runs counter to our religious culture that we need to be reminded of. That sin has consequences. That the sin of Zechariah had actual consequences. And he's a man of faith. He is a man who is walking with the Lord. But they are internal and external consequences to Zechariah's disbelief. Sin, well, it silences Zechariah. And not only does sin silence Zechariah, but sin silences us as believers. Satan, he has a strategy. And it's a sinister strategy And we are the target of his strategy. If you are a believer here, there is a security of your salvation. There is a security of your eternal destination. He holds you in the unbreakable grips of his grace. But what Satan desires to do is to silence your witness on earth. To steal the joy of your salvation. And this is what is occurring through the sin of Zechariah's disbelief. Do you know that in your life and in my life? That sin silences our witness. It mutes our witness to a lost and unbelieving world. It mars our light. It silences vocally and even externally what God desires to do. And how he desires to shine in you and in me. Many of you know the name of Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a great 20th century towering theologian. His church dogmatics, tremendous volumes. He, he is very helpful in many ways. And like any fallible teacher, there, there are errors and, and pathways that, that are not helpful to follow. But Barth has this wonderful analogy of what preaching is to be. The preaching is to be this conversation between the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. And the, the goal of preaching is to allow God's word in the context of scripture to speak to the now of our context on the front page. 
And if you buy newspapers now, if you go to the website of any newspaper, go to CNN or Fox, you, you see on the front page of news a scattering of very public figures whose sins have become public. So you have Matt Lauer, you have Garrison Keillor, you have Harvey Weinstein, uh, Weinstein, you have others who have been accused of harassment, they've been accused of assault, but yet they deny vehemently those accusations. And so there is this reckoning that is occurring. There's been for the first time in really society that what has largely been a female population that has been silenced by those in power and those with a voice And have oftentimes been taken advantage of. For one of the first times in human history, there is a moral reckoning that has occurred. Those that have been silent now have a voice to speak up. And there is a reckoning. Those with power, those with prestige, their voices are being muted because of the consequences of sin that have been admitted to. Now, there's much to say about this, and this is not a sermon to say all about that, but it is important to see that God utilizes sin oftentimes to bring about moral correction within a society. And it is important for you and me as the church to say, thank God that in 2017 there is moral certainty That to be a person of power, prestige, and position, to do this to those that do not have power, prestige, and position, this is wrong. It's wrong on CNN, and it's wrong on Fox. It's wrong in blue states, and it's wrong in red states. This is sin and should be called sin. And praise God that there is a voice now for those that have been powerless, those that have been positionless, to speak up and to say, this has happened and for there to be consequences. Now, we always know as believers that sometimes there are not earthly consequences, but there will always be eternal consequences. But now there are people that have had position, prestige, and power who are facing very much earthly consequences. And you need to know, I need to be reminded of this because sin is something that Satan sells to us with the illusion that you can do it in isolation. Nobody will find out, and it will not hurt anybody. So you can go about your business, uh, you can go about your family, you can go about your hobbies, and it will not be found out that you can actually silence the consequences of sin. But see, this is what sin does sin, it sours. It sours. It soured Zechariah and Elizabeth's celebration. I mean, could you imagine what that's like for the the duration of her pregnancy? This is the time for them to sing. This is the time for them to talk about, now, what are we going to do? How are we going to set up? How are we going to decorate? Where are we going to buy the bassinet? What about, what are all these things? Are we going to invite your parents? Are we going to invite my parents? How are we going to do all of those things that you talk about? Well, they got to write it all down. It soured their experience of this joyous celebration. And you need to hear All of us need to hear that sin always sours. It always sours. Recently, early Saturday morning, I was driving to a football game, and we stopped to get breakfast, and we, you know, what do you get three boys? Danielle wasn't with us, and so we had a really healthy meal of honey buns and donuts and (laughs) 
all of those things that a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 12-year-old would want. But, you know, I want to be a responsible parent so they can't get Mountain Dew. They all have to get milk, not chocolate milk, but just like whole milk. Like, that's really healthy for you with that. So they all come out of the gas station with their honey buns and their milk, and off we go to the game. Really, really busy traffic that we're going into. It's just bumper to bumper coming into the game. And then one of my sons says, uh-oh. Uh Uh-oh, in the back of my truck is not what I want to hear. And the next thing I hear is the milk from his container that he has not touched, but that he has opened, is tipped over, and it is pouring out all in the back seat of the truck. That's a problem. I know that to be a problem. So I get out of the traffic. I try to find something to clean up the milk, and I do the best that I can. I find some old running shirts, and I, I clean it up. I throw it into the back of the truck, and off we go. I leave the windows down while we're at the game to allow the wind to just kind of flow through there. And then we go back to the house. I, I, I get the Febreze out. I get all of the cleaners out, and I get into the crevices, and I get into the cracks, and I'm going to get all of the contaminant of milk out of my vehicle Well, I thought I did, and we went to celebrate Thanksgiving. I leave my truck. I can't believe it with the windows down that long, so I have to roll the windows up, and off we go for a few days. I get back into my truck, and guess what? There were some cracks and crevices that I missed, and it had soured the smell of my vehicle. In your soul... There are cracks and crevices that sin oftentimes gets lodged into. And there are many of us in this room that roll up the windows of the Holy Spirit. And we don't allow His breeze to flow through. We don't allow that sin to be confessed and given to the Lord. So it festers and it sours. It sours the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We're called to, to live loving lives, but, but what happens is the sin sours the love that we're called to share, and we become grouchy people. It sours patience, and we become impatient people. It sours forgiveness, and we hold grudges. Sin sours the fruit of your life and of my life. And there's some of you in this room that need to be reminded that God is calling you today to not allow sin to have the last word of a silencing word and a souring word in your life and in my life. And we're to roll the windows down and we're to confess our sin to him because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that cleanses all the cracks and the crevices of your soul and my soul. And we are, as James 5 verse 16 says, that we are to confess our sins one to another so that we might be healed. So there's vertical confession coupled with horizontal confession that allows the solvent of the Holy Spirit to cleanse every crack and crevice of your soul and of your life. Are the windows rolled down? Or have you rolled them up? Are there cracks and crevices that you say, I'm going to keep that there. It will sour your marriage. It will sour your relationships. It will sour your business dealings. It will sour the fruit of the Spirit that God desires to allow it to be seen and smelt. The beautiful aroma of your life in the Spirit. 
So sin silences, sin sours, but that's not the whole story here. As Paul Harvey says, there's the rest of the story, and we begin to read the rest of the story right here in Scripture in verse 57 through 66. Elizabeth gives birth. Eight days later, they bring the child for circumcision. What's the name of the child? Well, in that culture, they were expecting all of the visitors that come for him to be named Zechariah Jr., but no, Elizabeth says it's going to be John. All the friends say, Get, get Zachariah in here. Surely it's not going to be John. And he writes it down. Yes, it is to be John. And Luke tells us that immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loose. And he begins to praise God. And this is the song, starting in verse 67. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of the salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John Wesley, the great founder of Methodism, he comes here to commenting upon this passage. He says, isn't it interesting that when Zechariah is able to sing his song of praise at the birth of his own child, that he speaks about Christ chiefly and his son incidentally. Did you notice that? That this is all about Jesus. That he's, he is saying that Jesus is the culmination of the Abrahamic promises. That Jesus is the one that we have longed for in the Old Testament prophets. That he is coming and look what he is going to do. He is not he is going to be the light. My son, he's not the light, but he points to the light. My son, he's not the path of peace, but he points to the peace. You see what Zachariah is doing as a first-time father? Do you remember grandparents, the first grandson that was born? Do you, do you remember the joy that welled up inside of you in that maternity ward? Moms and dads, do you remember the birth of your first child? Do you remember the holy, unique experience of that? It was on your lips. I mean, you just wanted to tell of all of the uniqueness of life now that you have a child. There was nothing that could prepare you for it. What to expect when expecting can't really get you to the heart of what it's like to hold your child to you and to feel the warmth of her embrace as an infant to fill his heart upon your heart. And here's Zechariah. He, his mouth is loosed. His tongue can speak and sing. And he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit has come upon him. And he sings that song. Sin sours. Sin silences. But we have a greater Savior who saves and desires to set us free from the silencing and souring effects of sin. And when Zechariah 
heralds the coming of his son. He only sees his son in light of the greater son of the most high God. And in light of who Jesus is, it changes the very lyrics of his song. And and it really is a song that is in him because the Holy Spirit is upon him. And as we as Christians, approximately 2,000 years later, as believers that have asked the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, we have a song inside of us. I remember listening to a story of a good friend who was telling me about the matriarch of their family. It was in a hospital room. They had called all the family together. They would not be weeks they expected. They would be days that they expected, not just days, but hours. Death was imminent for their grandmother. They call all the family in. There's one son that lives a plane ride away. She waits, and you know this experience of one holding out to hold the hand of a son and that son and his wife and their family they enter into that hospital room and it's filled with family and they had this wonderful tradition in their family that that matriarch the son's mother this friend of mine's grandmother would would sing at christmas gatherings they would sing at thanksgiving gatherings it's just a part of who they were and so what do they do when they're in that hospital room but to sing She'd been incommunicative for hours, in and out for days. But song came forth. They were a heavenly hymnals. Do you remember Heavenly Highways hymnal? You remember that? Beulah Land, I'm winging my way. Those were the songs that they began to sing. And at first you could see her just mouthing the words and then her her eyes opened and she went to be with the Lord Jesus with a song that was familiar on her tongue. Zechariah had the Holy Spirit descend upon him and song erupted forth. If the Holy Spirit is inside of you, this song is inside of you. So my question to you as we come to this time of conclusion and reflection, has the sunrise on high shone in the cracks and crevices of your heart? Do you have the knowledge of salvation? Is Christ your mighty horn of salvation? Are you assured of the forgiveness of sins? Have you been delivered from the shadow of death? Are your feet treading upon the path of peace? Sin silences. Sin sours, but there is a greater song, the song of the Son of God that is here to be sung in your heart and in my heart if we, by faith, would turn to Him and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to blow anew and afresh in the cracks and the crevices of our own heart. What song comes forth? song of sin or the song of your Savior. Let us pray. We thank you for the wonderful promise that we see in this passage that reminds us of the true effects of sin and consequences of 
But that's not the end of Zechariah's story. And it's not the end of our story as we turn our eyes to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We have a song to sing as believers, a song of one that has overcome the silencing and souring effects of sin upon our own life. May today be a day that we're reminded that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that one who is greater than the sin that entangles us resides within us, has conquered death, has conquered sin. May we, through our confession, be reminded to point others to you. May we be reminded of the saving and cleansing power of your Holy Spirit inside of us who would turn and say yes to the free gift of salvation. It's in your name we pray, in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.